0: Thank you, Glees. Nice to see so many gluttons for punishment. Uh, here. <laughs> there is no new thing to be said about Lincoln. There is no new thing to be said of the mountains, or of the seas, or of the stars. The years go their way, but the same old mountains lift their granite shoulders above the drifting clouds. The same mysterious sea beats upon the shore. The same silent stars keep holy vigil, above a tired world. But to the mountains and sea and stars men turn forever in unwearied homage. And thus Lincoln, for he was a mountain in grandeur of soul. He was a sea in deep undervoice of mystic loneliness. He was a star in steadfast purity of purpose and service. And he abides. So declared an otherwise obscure congressman from Kansas named Homer Hook on February 12, 1923, as quoted by Carl Sandburg, of whom it was said by literary critic Edmund Wilson that he was the worst thing to happen to Lincoln since John Wilkes Booth. <laughs> All which goes to show that while fascination with our 16th president is unending, so are frictions within the sometimes unfraternal fraternity of Lincoln scholars. Indeed, there are times when the Civil War appears decidedly civil, next to the academic disputes surrounding topics as diverse as Lincoln's attitude towards slavery or his view of civil liberties during wartime. If Lincoln's scholarship is timeless, it is also trendy. Often it reveals more about us, about our culture, and our preconceptions, than it does about Lincoln. Thus we have Brokeback Lincoln and Prozac Lincoln, worthy successors to Dictator Lincoln and Racist Lincoln. When Stephen A. Douglas accosted him on the stump and uh, accused him of being two-faced, Lincoln neatly turned the tables. If I really had two faces, he asked, do you think I would hide behind this one? If he wasn't two-faced, it is certainly true that Lincoln did not wear the same face before every audience. Of all the Lincoln stories, none seems so metaphorically revealing, at least, as the eerie encounter that Lincoln had with himself on election night 1860. Worn out from the campaign and the suspense of vote counting, the president-elect went home to rest. From his bed, he saw a bureau with a swinging mirror and in it his own reflection. My face, I noticed, had two separate and distinct images, Lincoln recalled afterward, one of the faces a little paler than the other. I get up and the thing melted away. My wife thought it was a sign that I was to be elected to another term and that the paleness of one of the faces was an omen that I shouldn't see life through that term. The story foreshadows the terrible price exacted for Lincoln's political self-realization. More than that, it hints at a friend's later description of Lincoln as, quote, a man totally swallowed up in his ambitions. In truth, the man in the mirror was many men, the dual images reflective of one who combined opposites with astonishing ease. What is conservatism, asked candidate Lincoln early in 1860. Is it not adherence to the old and tried against the new and untried? Yet just two years later, amid the smoke and steel of civil war, Lincoln sounded a radically different note when he told Congress, quote, the dogmas of the quiet past are inadequate of a stormy present. The occasion is piled high with difficulty, and we must rise with the occasion. As our case is new, so we must think anew and act anew. We must disenthrall ourselves, and then we shall save our country." As contradictory in his personality as in his politics, Lincoln revealed much when he declared that, quote, the fiery trial through which we pass will light us down in honor or dishonor to the latest generation. For Abraham Lincoln, life itself was a fiery trial, a permanent campaign, waged not alone for office, but for the good opinion of his fellow citizens and the chance to be honorably remembered to the latest generation. A century and a half later, we are still debating the multiple faces of Abraham Lincoln. Is he the great emancipator of tradition or the racist caricature drawn by some academics in our own time? The champion of popular self-determination or the incipient dictator trumpeting human rights while suspending individual liberties? Is he the teller of vulgar stories or the author of imperishable prose? Is he one of us? Or was his friend Joshua Speed nearer the mark when he said of Lincoln, he could act no part but his own. He copied no one, either in manner or style. I don't know who my grandfather was, Lincoln once observed. I am much more concerned to know what his grandson will be. That he didn't know his grandfather was not due to a lack of curiosity on Lincoln's part. In fact, he once confessed to his law partner, William Herndon, that he believed his mother to be the illegitimate offspring of a nameless Virginia aristocrat. Then he swore Herndon to secrecy. The story hints at Lincoln's lifelong conviction that he was profoundly different from the unlettered, often complacent frontiersman with whom he was linked for political purposes. There was no romance to be woven from his childhood, Lincoln told his 1860 campaign biographer, John L. Scripps. In an oft-quoted disclaimer, the candidate insisted that his early years in Kentucky and Indiana amounted to nothing more than what he called, quote, the short and simple annals of the poor. One soon learns that with Lincoln, however, few things are short and nothing is simple. The truth is that Lincoln spent a lifetime not so much celebrating his rustic origins As escaping them. It wasn't the $8 a month flat boatman to whom his philosophy of social mobility and free labor paid tribute. Rather, it was a system of self-government that offered him and other common laborers the chance to be uncommon. For Lincoln, frontier life was a tireless effort to prove himself and to improve himself, while simultaneously vindicating the ideas of individual dignity contained in the Declaration of Independence. Now, another clue to Lincoln's character is his surveying career. A surveyor, after all, is an executive of nature. He stamps order on chaos by fixing his name to previously uncharted territory. In the process, he secures to himself a fragment of immortality, realized through mathematical formula. This was much on Lincoln's mind. As a young man in New Salem, He observed to a friend, It isn't a pleasant thing to think that when we die, that is the last of us. Needless to say, this craving for secular immortality, the kind that was bestowed on Washington and the founding generation, is nowhere to be seen in Horatio Alger's 1883 potboiler, The Backwoods Boy, or How a Young Rail Splitter Became President. Alger was to Lincoln what Parson Weems was to George Washington is Lincoln is a child of the frontier who comes out of the wilderness to validate democracy with much of the same determinism uh, did, yeah, that made Washington incapable of telling a lie. This would have come as news to Lincoln, whose ambition was equaled by his elusiveness. As a young man, he sought political office, reputation, love, and economic success pretty much in that order. Most of all, however, he sought coherence. Lincoln's appreciation of Shakespeare, and particularly of the tragedies, throws light on his depressive personality. Over the years, Lincoln scholars have spilled barrels of ink, hoping to trace melancholy to its source. His depression stemmed from the death of his mother when he was but nine years old, it has been argued. Its shattering impact reinforced by the loss of a much-loved sister a few years later, and the cruel fate visited upon Ann Rutledge, his first sweetheart, in 1835. Other theories attribute his emotional fragility to acute embarrassment over his ungainly appearance and social ineptitude, or to neglecting childhood, even chronic constipation, for which Lincoln liberally dosed himself with blue mass pills purchased from a Springfield druggist. More recently, and perhaps more convincingly, it has been suggested that Lincoln's family was genetically predisposed to depression. According to Kentucky sources, his father had been known to walk that state's bluegrass bluegrass fields while loudly talking to himself of God's providence, much as his famous son would be observed in the Illinois legal circuit, babbling what one lawyer and bunkmate called, quote, the wildest and most incoherent nonsense. Presumably that was outside the courtroom. Whatever the cause, Lincoln seemed as preoccupied with insanity as he was with death. In his late 30s, a visit to the scenes of his Indiana youth inspired a poem. That's right, Lincoln wrote bad poetry before he he wrote great prose. A poem about a boyhood friend who had lost his mind. A human form with reason fled, wrote Lincoln, while wretched life remains. Did Abraham Lincoln fear the loss of his own sanity? According to biographer Stephen Oates, it was precisely such dread that explains his refusal to indulge in alcohol or surrender to passion. Americans, Lincoln told his Springfield neighbors in 1842, must place their reliance on quote, reason, cold, calculating, impassioned reason. It was Lincoln's fate to be a rational man in an irrational time. And then there was slavery. Never, he said, as an adult, was there a time when slavery didn't have the power to make me miserable. In fact, Lincoln was still an infant when his parents joined an abolitionist branch of the Baptist Church. The family's subsequent move to Indiana was at least partly influenced by Thomas Lincoln's disdain for the South's peculiar institution. At the age of 19, Thomas's son had his first encounter with the trafficking of human beings Lincoln took a flatboat down the Mississippi to New Orleans, and there was much about New Orleans that uh, impressed him. It was the first city he'd ever seen, and it was then, as now, uh, an exotic place, um, overwhelming, essentially. Uh, um, on the other hand, before he left, Lincoln also came face-to-face with a slave auction. It was the first time he'd ever seen this, and it horrified him, and I think it left an imprint on him for the rest of his life. A decade later, in politics, he told the Illinois legislature that slavery was, in his words, founded on both injustice and bad policy. In 1838, the rising politician told an audience in Springfield, As a nation of free men, we must live through all time or die by suicide. The law, after surveying, may have been Lincoln's livelihood, but politics was his wife. You will never begin to understand. Lincoln, unless you understand he is a political animal. Ambition defined what I call his permanent campaign. Victory promised current reputation and future remembrance. To Joshua Speed, his closest friend, Lincoln confessed in 1841 that he would be perfectly willing to die then and there. Quote, but I have an inexpressible desire to live, he added, at least till I can be assured that the world is a little better for my having lived in it. At the same time, as a lot of folks found out last Tuesday, there are only so many voters who can be moved through logic, eloquence, or cold, calculating, impassioned reason to see moral imperatives otherwise obscured by greed, self-interest, or bigotry. What this meant in practical terms is that Lincoln could master himself, but not the other. Both idealist and pragmatist, his enormous drive matched by a brooding fatalism. In seeking validation through politics, he had chosen the one profession that guaranteed fame and misery in equal measure. If you want a historical parallel, I, uh, I would suggest Winston Churchill, who famously talked about his black dog. His uh, depression, and yet Churchill combated his depression through political combat. Um, The need to be in politics, to be in combat, (coughs) brought some kind of cohesion and focus to a life that might otherwise succumb to uh, to the black dog. Now, said Lincoln in 1843, if you should hear anyone say that Lincoln don't want to go to Congress, I wish you would tell him you have reason to believe he is mistaken. The truth is, I'd like to go very much. When the prize went instead to a rival, Lincoln made little effort to hide his bitterness. Three years later, he was again climbing the greasy pole. Winning the election in November 1846, quote, has not pleased me as much as I expected, he confessed. While in Congress, he opposed the Mexican War as an unjust conflict waged for slaveholders by a compliant Polk administration. It's interesting comparing then and now Lincoln, very courageously, spoke out against the Mexican War. at um, a time, when to do so was to take real political risks uh, back in Illinois. He, even, he introduced, at one point, what became known as the Spot Resolution, which required President Polk to identify the spot on the map when Mexican aggression had occurred, thereby justifying American response. The Democrats took to calling him Spotty Lincoln, uh, and he was uh, defeated for a second term. So he paid a price for principal. He earned vilification back home. Denied re-election in 1848, Lincoln joined the ranks of unemployed lawmakers who lobbied the new president, Zachary Taylor, for the spoils of victory. It's had to believe Lincoln standing in line with all the other every, uh, average, everyday job seekers. But he did. Logical as ever, Lincoln prepared a list of perfectly, 11 perfectly sound reasons why President Taylor should appoint him commissioner of the General Land Office, a sinecure that paid $3,000 a year. Taylor was unpersuaded. As a consolation prize, Lincoln was offered the territorial governorship of Oregon, which he turned down, a politically adroit move he blamed on a wife whose desire for rank dwarfed even his own. His willingness to feed at the public trough gave poignancy to Lincoln's later dealings with the horde of places who infested his White House. At one point, transforming misery through humor, uh, Lincoln declared himself well-pleased to have contracted a mild form of smallpox because, as he put it, now at last I have something I can give everyone. <laughs> but all that was in the unfathomed future. And in the meanwhile, there was posterity to ruin an ambitious man's sleep. Had he died in 1849, or even five years after, following his first unsuccessful campaign for the United States Senate, Lincoln would be little noted nor long remembered today. Whatever else they held in store, events would spare him that fate. Instead, they would bury the man in a shroud of democratic myth-making and self-sacrificing nobility. Under the circumstances, his relationship with Mary Todd might best be understood in terms instantly recognizable to modern audiences as a political partnership. Unlike the vast majority of well-bred, well-read young ladies of her day, Mary loved the cut and thrust of the public arena to which she was denied admission on account of her sex. So she played at politics vicariously. Her father's close friend, Henry Clay of Kentucky, was Lincoln's great political hero. That's what really brought them together. I sometimes say Henry Clay was the matchmaker who brought Abraham and Mary Lincoln together. Today, Mary would be a candidate. In the 19th century, she didn't have that option. So she channeled all of her energies, and they were fierce, uh, through this ungainly um, one-term congressman who, by mid-1850s was universally regarded as a man whose political career was over. As fiercely loyal as the Nancy Reagan or Hillary Clinton, Mary Lincoln glimpsed a destiny visible to few others. That said, the Quaker-Brown Lincoln residence at the corner of 8th and Jackson Streets in Springfield may well be considered the original house divided. Billy Herndon exaggerated the shrew qualities of Mrs. Lincoln, with whom he enjoyed, if that is the word, a relationship of unconcealed mutual antipathy. Yet there are too many contemporary accounts that have Mary striking her husband with a stick of wood, hurling hot coffee in his face, or driving him to take refuge on an extra long sofa in the offices of Lincoln and Herndon to be dismissed as mere neighborhood gossip. That is not to say that Lincoln was an easy man to live with. He was not when he wasn't away on the legal circuit for weeks at a time. In fact, someone did toted this up and figured that through much of the 1850s, part of the 1840s, Lincoln was literally away from home six months out of the year, riding the, the legal circuit. And that left Mary uh, to take care of small children with the help of an Irish maid with whom she was invariably quarreling. He could be found lying on the floor in a newspaper-induced trance or answering the door to his wife's dismay in his shirt sleeves or absentmindedly pulling a wagon down the street, heedless of a screaming child who had fallen out. A Springfield neighbor looked out the window one day and saw Lincoln carrying his two sons, Willie and Tad, the boys shouting at each other and punching the air. "'What's wrong?' said Lincoln's neighbor." Just what's the matter with the whole world, replied Lincoln. I've got three walnuts, and each wants two. (laughs) At first blush, the Lincolns appear as ill-matched as sandpaper and silk. On closer examination, their admittedly turbulent marriage confirms the old adage that opposites attract. There are no photographs of the two together. Mary didn't want to be photographed with Abraham. Not not for... he was 6'4", and she was five, one. He used to introduce the two of them as the long and the short of it, and she didn't laugh. <laughs> like a pair of high-spirited horses yoked in harness, they had to pull together if the coach of state was not to be upset. Mary's quicksilver temper should not obscure the genuine love she felt for her husband, nor the pride she took in his accomplishments. Mary and the boys supplied a buffer against worldly rejection, but they never quenched Lincoln's thirst for distinction. What elevated him above mere political gamesmanship was the wedding of ambition to principle. The 1850s saw his coming of age. In October 1854, Lincoln told an audience, my ancient faith teaches me that all men are created equal. Slavery, he added, was a monstrous injustice, mocking the claims of American liberty shaming all true friends of freedom. In his celebrated House Divided speech of June 16, 1858, Lincoln employed biblical language to warn that the United States could not long exist half slave and half free, yet he was no abolitionist. What Lincoln wanted, emphatically, was to put slavery on the road to extinction, thereby proving to the doubters that the American experiment would outlive them all. In preparing to engage Stephen Douglas in a historic series of debates that fall, he sat down and scribbled out what may be the most profound sound bite in American history. This is what he wrote, it's a little piece of paper preserved at the Lincoln Library in Springfield that Lincoln sat down one day and just scratched out. As I would not be a slave, so I would not be a master. This expresses my idea of democracy. Whatever differs from this, to the extent of the difference, is no democracy. Speaking in Chicago, Lincoln proposed to discard once and for all the talk of, quote, inferior people. But in downstate Illinois, where the prevailing attitude was much friendlier to slavery and more hostile to the black man, he denied ever favoring social or political equality between the races. Lincoln couldn't run that kind of campaign today. Forget television, the internet wouldn't allow it. The differences between what he said in Northern Illinois and what he said in Southern Illinois would become, can't you see the, 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 the campaign commercials, Lincoln's flip-flops on slavery? The fact is, Lincoln was a pragmatist with a moral core who was willing to adjust tactics and even strategy in order to attain his long-term objective. I claim not to have controlled events, he would say as president, but confess plainly that events have controlled me." That was probably one of the more honest statements ever uttered by an American president, relevant to many American presidents. Events might control Lincoln's actions, but there were many among his countrymen who chafed under his firm or heavy hand. Lincoln himself recognized as much when he wrote, "'It has been a grave question whether any government not too strong for the liberties of its people can be strong enough to maintain its existence in emergencies. Think of that. Think of the relevance of those words to the headlines in today's papers. The American Civil War was, in fact, two wars. One, a conventional conflict played out on a thousand fields of battle. The other, an interior struggle for Lincoln's head and heart, waged through constitutional debates and the incessant clash between moral and military requirements. Together these two wars illustrate Lincoln's legacy. After all, everyone knows that Abraham Lincoln preserved the Union and freed the slaves, right? Well, not exactly. Lincoln didn't preserve the Union, at least not the Union as it existed before 1861. Melted down in the blast furnace of war was the compact of sovereign states drawn up by the founders in the summer of 1787 in its place emerged a modern industrial power with a strong central government, a nation, instead of a confederation. On the other hand, Lincoln did free the slaves. He just didn't do it through his Emancipation Proclamation. We might personalize these issues by looking at two men whom Lincoln would meet, as it were, coming and going. One man embodying a feudal culture and its death throes, the other looking forward to a racial democracy, of which Lincoln himself was only dimly aware. Chief Justice Roger Taney was yesterday's man. He was the chief sponsor of the Dred Scott decision that effectively nullified the black man's claim to American citizenship. Remember the Missouri Compromise in 1820 had uh, placed a northern limit on the extension of slavery. And uh, the Dred Scott decision, in effect, nullified the compromise and said to slave owners, "You can take your slaves anywhere you want in the United States. You can take to any state, you can take them to any territory. They are property, they are not people." That, needless to say, did not sit well with a growing number of northerners and not just abolitionists. Lincoln embodied, if there was such a thing as the middle of the road on this position. He was appalled by slavery, he opposed slavery, he thought it was a great moral injustice, but he also was able to put himself in the shoes of Southerners. Remember Thomas Jefferson had said, we have a wolf by the ears. There were many Southerners who themselves were made uncomfortable, if not more than uncomfortable, by slavery, but they didn't know how to get rid of it. And what Lincoln wanted to do the moderate position, if you will, was to put slavery, as I say, on the road to extinction. Months after Tawney swore Lincoln into office in 1861, the two men were locked in a constitutional crisis within a crisis. This is what Lincoln said, I'm like a man so busy in letting rooms in one end of his house that he can't stop to put out the fire burning in the other. With the Union crumbling and Washington itself facing a military threat, The untested president confronted dangers everywhere he looked. Desperate times called for desperate measures, which Lincoln was not afraid to resort to. So he asserted executive authority as no president before or since. He suspended such cherished constitutional guarantees as habeas corpus, the right of every American to a trial. His actions led critics then and historians since to speak of incipient dictatorship. Chief Justice Taney directed the president to release a Maryland secessionist, one of 13,000 people who were arrested under martial law. Lincoln refused. He justified his action under the doctrine of wartime necessity. Were Maryland's legislatures, a legislature permitted to met, meet and to vote secession, Washington, capital of the disunited States, would find itself clenched between the jaws of the Maryland-Virginia nutcracker. Anticipating claims that reverberate through today's headlines, Lincoln said that unprecedented circumstances authorized him to temporarily suspend a single clause of the Constitution. The alternative, he argued, was to yield to men who would trash the entire document. This is Lincoln at his best. Listen to his explanation. Often a whim must be amputated to save a life. But a life is never wisely given to save a limb. In any event, Lincoln's sweeping claims of executive authority could never have been made, let alone accepted in the old pre-war union. That was gone. His confrontation with Chief Justice Taney is the Lincoln Presidency in miniature, a medley of tactical improvisation and bedrock principle. It summarizes not only the historical example Lincoln set for his successors, but how he transformed the presidency. But if Tawney belonged to the old order, the former slave Frederick Douglass couldn't wait to bury the past. He was equally impatient for black troops to be enrolled in Union armies. The mission of the war, said Douglass, was the liberation of the slaves, as well as the salvation of the Union. I reproached the North that they fought with one hand, while they might effectively fight with two, that they fought with the soft white hand while they kept the black iron hand chained and helpless behind them. Lincoln held to a different view of the conflict. The same cold impassioned reason to which he paid tribute told him that it was hypocritical for a nation professing a love of liberty to keep millions of human beings in chains. But as with his suspension of habeas corpus, political imperatives transcended his personal desires. He must do nothing to alienate Kentucky and other border states that had agreed to stay in the Union provisionally and which were hostile to emancipation. I would save the Union, wrote Lincoln. If I could save the Union without freeing any slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that. Events beyond his control would force his hand. For years, Lincoln had fantasized that it was possible, for example, to send the slaves back to Africa through a plan of colonization. He thought that you might be able to buy off slaveholders, that the federal government could financially compensate slaveholders. Needless to say, those were fantasies. And by the summer of 1862, he knew better. The time for expedience was past. The master politician had found an issue that could not be finessed. Had he not forecast as much in his house-divided speech, four years earlier. To Frederick Douglass, the Emancipation Proclamation was, quote, the greatest event of our nation's history. Lincoln himself would describe it later as the central act of my administration. At the time, however, he sang a different tune, portraying emancipation as a wartime measure born of necessity, if not desperation, and questioning whether, as he put it afterward, quote, the people had been quite educated up to it. Now, here is Lincoln's true greatness as a president. It's Lincoln the persuader, Lincoln the educator, forerunner of modern presidents for whom the chief occupation, in Harry Truman's words, is to convince people to do what they ought to do but don't want to do. In his December 1862 message to Congress, Lincoln employed reason, logic, and unforgettable eloquence to demonstrate the essential truth of democratic leadership, something that we'll come back to over and over again in this series of lectures, that there can be no authority without moral authority. Fellow citizens, he said, we cannot escape history. We of this Congress and this administration will be remembered in spite of ourselves. No personal significance or insignificance can spare one or another of us. In giving freedom to the slave, we assure freedom to the free honorable alike in what we give and what we preserve, we shall nobly save or meanly lose the last best hope of Earth." Lincoln was the original great communicator. Like others aspiring to that title, he never hesitated to use humor to make a point. Mr. Lincoln's flaw of humor was a sparkling spring, gushing out of a rock, said his favorite funnyman, Petroleum V. Naseby. The flashing water had a somber background which made it all the brighter. His second favorite uh, funny man was named Office Seeker, Orpheus (laughs) Seeker. Lincoln himself told a disapproving candidate that he must laugh or else he would die. It's hard to believe that there was a time in American politics when candidates thought up their own one liners. Lincoln used his to devastating effect. Stephen Douglas, for example, complained that every one of Lincoln's jokes. Seems like whack upon my back. (laughs) Nothing so exasperated the president next to the unending list of war casualties as the unending line of job seekers outside his office door. Once a haughty female visitor accosted Lincoln at a White House reception and demanded that he give her son a colonel's commission, not as a favor but as a right. Sir, she said, my grandfather fought at Lexington. My uncle was the only man who did not run away at Bladensburg. My father fought at New Orleans, sir, and my husband was killed at Monterey. Madam, said Lincoln, your family has done enough for the country. It is time to give somebody else a chance. (laughs) Another day, one of Lincoln's most persistent callers came to him with news that the chief of customs had just died. Could he possibly take his place? Lincoln couldn't resist. It's fine with me, he said, if the undertaker doesn't mind. We are still debating Lincoln and slavery, Lincoln and race, and that's a good thing, it's a healthy thing, because Lincoln in so many ways is a mirror, to return to the analogy of the mirror, he is in so many ways a mirror held up to reflect our own attitudes about race and how they have evolved over time. It's very interesting, there is a school of thought uh, among some today uh, that Lincoln should forfeit the title of the great emancipator. Uh, On the other hand, it's very interesting to listen to Frederick Douglass, who was no apologist for Lincoln or anyone else, who said his countrymen, this is in Douglass' words, he urged him to take a comprehensive view of Abraham Lincoln and to make reasonable allowance for the circumstances of his position. To be sure, quote, viewed from the genuine abolition ground, Mr. Lincoln seemed tardy, cold, dull, and indifferent, said Douglas. but measuring him by the sentiment of the country, a sentiment he was bound as a statesman to consult, he was swift, zealous, radical, and determined. The force of circumstances is often a force beyond any president's control. And before you pass judgment on any president, it seems to me you need to understand the circumstances that both guide and limit his actions. The last days of Mr. Lincoln, said Douglas, were his best days. On the 1st of February, 1865, Congress adopted the 13th Amendment. It didn't just happen. Lincoln twisted arms. He twisted a few arms off. He got just enough Republicans to vote in Congress to pass the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery. He knew that the Emancipation Proclamation was no permanent solution. He knew that a future president who didn't share his views could claim that it was a mere wartime measure having no uh, impact on peace. The only way to get rid of slavery once and for all was to amend the Constitution. And it is fitting that Lincoln's last great public act was to conjure up just enough votes to make it happen. So in the end, yes, Lincoln freed the slaves. He just didn't do it in 1863. He did it in 1865. His evolution on the subject of race and on the true meaning of the war came full circle in the Old Testament echoes of his second inaugural address. Fondly do we hope, said Lincoln, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue, until all the wealth piled up by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn from the sword As was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. What is Lincoln saying? He is, in fact, invoking the Bible in ways that presidents never invoked the Bible, to say that we have been guilty of a great crime against the black man whom we brought from Africa and whom we enslaved and whose blood we took with the lash. And that God is punishing us, this generation, for this crime by drawing blood with the sword. Usually presidents invoke God so that we know God's on his side. Lincoln invoked God, almost in the way of an early Puritan minister, to put the fear of God uh, in the best sense of the word in his audience. The magnanimous sentiments of the Second Inigo afford a perfect counterpoint to the violent climax of the Lincoln story. His murder by a Southern sympathizer who had stood outside the White House on April 11th and heard Lincoln publicly call for limited black suffrage. John Wilkes Booth turned to a friend and said, that's the last speech he'll ever make. His assassination coincided with Good Friday, the most sorrowful day on the Christian calendar. Thus Lincoln's destiny was fulfilled in keeping with one of his favorite lines from Shakespeare. There is a divinity that shapes our ends, rough hewn them how we will. To say that Lincoln grew in office is to underestimate his true achievement. Long before his visit to Ford's theater, his wife had become a parable of sacrifice, not success. His personal ambition had been purified by his embrace of the anti-slavery cause. The occasion is piled high with difficulty, and we must rise with the occasion. He more than lived up to those words. In his growing spirituality, Lincoln did not, like some modern-day politicians, presume to know God's agenda. Still less did he arrogate to himself the role of national theologian. Nevertheless, his death on Good Friday struck powerful chords among his contemporaries. Even now, 140 years after his funeral made its mournful trek across the Illinois prairie, he remains as vital a part of America's future as he is a venerated relic of our past. If the rail splitter retains an undiminished power to move, inspire, and occasionally shame us, perhaps it is because in his permanent campaign we can see reflected back our own ambitions, uncertainties, and drives. Out of his fiery trial emerged the soldier of freedom, for whom preserving the Union supplied both a unity of purpose and a ticket to that secular immortality he had first glimpsed as a boy, spellbound by Weems's Life of Washington. Thus did the man in the mirror ensure that he would be remembered and revered as the leader who marshaled the English language and his own matchless talent for manipulating men and events to keep the United States united. After a century and a half, he remains the president against whom all others are measured. Thank you very much. Questions, comments, yeah. I think it's one of the things that people admire. I mean, as they look at Lincoln's use. First of all, the, remember the brilliant thing Lincoln did was to get all his enemies together and appoint them to the cabinet. That was a stroke of genius. A lesser man, a more vindictive man, a more conventional man uh, wouldn't have done that. And that was the first real sign that this is, this is not an ordinary politician. So he brought all of these people together. He made them all jointly responsible for their common success. Um, and he utilized them, I think, in ways that, you know, most people would regard as highly successful. He played them off against each other from time to time. Um, he, he was a large enough man that he didn't, well, you know, Edwin Stanton, his first Secretary of War was Simon Cameron, who was a cred Pennsylvania politician. Uh, Pennsylvania then was what Illinois is today. Um, and and um, it was once uh, he was asked, um, Lincoln was asked if there was anything that Simon Cameron wouldn't steal. And he said, well, I don't think he'd steal a red hot stove. Um, <laughs> although about that there was some doubt. Um, Cameron was was bundled off. He was scapegoated to some, you know, he made a very good scapegoat the failures of the Union Army early on. And who did Lincoln bring in? Edward Stanton. Now, Edward Stanton had been in the Buchanan administration. He was the only one with any backbone in the Buchanan administration. But before that, he'd been a very successful Ohio lawyer. And in that role, he had encountered Lincoln and insulted Lincoln. Referred to him as that long-armed baboon. And Lincoln This knew about this. And the, again, the fascinating thing is that Lincoln was large enough to rise above these old slights, I can think of some presidents probably who couldn't do that. So I think Lincoln, in many ways, used his cabinet brilliantly, and was and in turn was benefited by it. I mean, the Republican Party was brand new; it had never had a president before, and a lot of what he was doing by bringing these people together was by by representing the, the factions in his own party. Um, he was a he is the best politician who ever occupied the Oval Office. First and foremost, Lincoln is a brilliant politician. Yeah? Uh, would you discuss a little more of the circumstances leading up to the second election? Well, there was a considerable doubt as to whether Lincoln could or should be reelected. There were radical Republicans in his own party who believed that he wasn't uh, uh, vigorous enough in pursuing the war prosecuting the war, or uh, upholding the rights of the black man. Um, And there were some who wanted to run, of all people, General Grant. They knew nothing about his politics, but then as later, he was a successful military man, and that's all they needed to know. And, um, but Lincoln, again, was such such a skillful party manager that he, Uh, was able to secure, in the end, an almost unanimous renomination. He also did something very smart. He renamed the Republican Party. It became the Union Party in 1864. He dumped his vice president and replaced him with a Democrat from Tennessee named Andrew Johnson. And those are very, very important symbolic gestures. It said that this is a president who's fighting this terrible civil war, and under these circumstances, you know, business as usual, is out the window. This is not a conventional partisan war. It can't be fought in that way. We have to bring people together. We have to unite people to fight the war and presumably to, uh, to uh, uh, secure the peace. So Lincoln took a number of steps, um, both by broadening his political base, by controlling, if you will, the Republican machine. But then he knew he was at the mercy of events. Remember, I claim not to have controlled events, but to be in the control of events. And in the fall of 1864, the summer of 1864, he believed that he would not be reelected. Uh, the war was going badly. People were terribly war-weary. You look at the mood of this country about Iraq when we've lost 3,000 soldiers. I mean, you know, They lose 10,000 soldiers in a single battle. And this has been going on for four years. So, um, Lincoln actually one day had his cabinet meet and uh, he asked them all to sign the back of a document. They didn't know what was on the front of the document. And what was on the front of the document was, in his own handwriting, basically a concession of defeat and a commitment that the government, that their government would conduct themselves between November and March of 1865 in such a way as to win the war because it was unlikely that the next government would do so after March 1865. Um, and then something happened. General Sherman took Atlanta. And that's what turned the tide. Politically, militarily, um, the mood of the country lifted. They realized this war is, in fact, almost over. Because once the, 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 the backbone of the Confederacy was, was broken and Sherman was uh, uh, marching to the sea, um, there was no question that the South could, uh, could come back from, from its military uh, condition, so, yeah. While he was in Washington as president, did Lincoln have any friend or confidant having surrounded himself with his enemies? In the Lincoln was a man, Lincoln was, you know, his his David Davis, who was a probably as close, along with Joshua Speed, as close a friend as he had, said Lincoln was the most secretive man he ever knew. Um, and Davis was his campaign manager in 1860, and subsequently dominated the Supreme Court. Um, It wasn't that he, Lincoln was a terribly private, very secretive individual who chose to have, like Franklin Roosevelt, arguably like Ronald Reagan, countless acquaintances, and, and, and no doubt lots and lots of people who thought they were his friend, and with whom he was friendly but not in the way that I think you and I think of as, he had no intimates, put it that way. I mean, actually, the closest thing probably would be the two young men who served him as White House secretaries, John A. and John Nicolay. And there was an almost paternal relationship. Uh, but in terms of contemporaries or other politicians, there were people, you know, with whom he worked closely. There were people he respected. Uh, there were people, to some degree, he took into his confidence. Very interestingly, you know, one thing he did, which is... I think probably time was value for any president. Lincoln, Lincoln would invite reporters in. Lincoln liked to spend a lot of time with the, with the press because he thought he could find out things from them that he couldn't find out anywhere else. He also had he insisted on having you know regular, almost weekly receptions where the public could, could come in and, and meet him. And it was su- suggested that this was either a waste of time. Or tempting fate in terms of his security, and Lincoln, you know, said he he referred to them as his public opinion baths. People coming into him off the street, regular people, would have their own view of the war, their own perspective, and and it would be you know like the hot house atmosphere of the White House, We you walked up in that office all day, surrounded by job seekers, you know, or go across the street. He'd walk across the street. Of course, no Secret Service in those days, to the War Department, to the Telegraph Office to get the latest list of casualties. Pretty gloomy, pretty depressing existence. But he, he didn't let himself be walled in by the presidency. And I think that's one of the lessons of enduring significance for any, probably for any leader, but particularly for any president. Yeah. Chase was a the one in his side. there's no doubt about it. Uh, uh, Salmon P. Chase wanted, with every breath he took to be President of the United States. But he was so transparent he, that it made him clumsy. I mean, Lincoln was a very nimble uh, tactician and strategist, but he could dance rings around Chase. You know Chase just lusted like a big panting dog, you know, and um, it was so transparent, and um, he was so clumsy. And um, so Lincoln, you know, it was almost, sometimes almost like a game, you know. However, it must be said that Salmon Chase played a pivotal role. Salmon Chase was a brilliant Secretary of the Treasury. The United States was broke. And somehow, Salmon Chase managed to finance the Civil War. Now, we had the first tax, income tax, in American history, we had the first paper currency in American history. So, I mean I think most people give Chase high marks for his performance as Secretary of Treasury. They just don't give him high marks for his performance as a human being. <laughs> <laughs> Seward, William Seward of New York, who would also was Secretary of State and who would have been another opponent. Remember, Chase had run for president against Lincoln, Seward ran for president against Lincoln, Edward Bates of Missouri, who became Attorney General, had run in that same convention. Um, the surest way to get a job in the cabinet was to run against Lincoln, Get you over know, president. Seward was Secretary of State, and, a, and I, you know, I'm biased. I'm a Seward fan. I think he, and I, Seward, Seward actually, you know, Lincoln was very close to Seward. Seward made him laugh. The two men would sit and tell each other stories until tears rolled down their eyes, and and each of them desperately needed that, and Seward, I mean, the more you know, Seward was a short, hawk-nosed kind of guy. He bent over like Groucho Marx, um, and and he, he, sort of, he was a sort of comical figure. Uh, looked like a great macaw, and um, he and Lincoln, I mean, it was sort of mutton Jeff. But they, you know, they got over their initial animosity, and they became a, a real team. And Seward was a, you know, Seward was a mainstay of uh, of that administration. What about Lincoln's view of how it restored Well, it evolved. It was, again, Lincoln was a pragmatist, so it was dynamic. Um, I think it's probably broadly fair to say that on one hand, it was more magnanimous than many Northerners might, might like, but at the same time, it was attached with growing conviction to some kind of provision for black rights, including suffrage. And I, I don't think the two would have proved compatible in the post war era. I mean, we'll never know. We know that Andrew Johnson tossed away, in many ways, the Northern victory. The North won the war and the South won the peace. And for that, he will burn in presidential hell. Um, impeachment was too good for Andrew Johnson. Uh, It took 100 years until another Southern named Johnson made good on uh, the promise of racial equality uh, of his predecessor, who had also been murdered. But we don't know whether Reconstruction would have taken a different course. We can confidently predict that it would have been managed far more skillfully by a much more gifted politician and by someone with infinitely more prestige and moral authority than Andrew Johnson. One more. Yeah. Uh, what do you think the death of this child did to it? Well, you know, it's interesting to see the conf- the contrasting uh, reactions of the Lincolns because I think Mary Lincoln gets a bad press, and I think, you know, a lot of it's unfair. I mean, his a woman who lost her mother, who lost uh, three of her four sons, and who was committed to a medical institution by her fourth son, and of course saw her husband assassinated. I think we should all cut her a little slack. I think what happened, uh, I think... Um, Willie's death is what really broke her. I mean, Mary was never the same after that. And um, on the other hand, Lincoln, who grieved, he would every week. He on the I think Willie died on a Thursday, and Lincoln every Thursday would go and sit, you know, in, in Willie's room. And um, and yet, Lincoln had the character not to be destroyed. It was almost as if somehow Lincoln's personal suffering joined him to all the other families in America who were suffering. I mean, it fused him in a way that nothing else could have. So Lincoln went on and kept growing, I think, as a human being and as a leader. Um, He became closer than ever to Tad. He wasn't very close, you know, to his older son, Robert Todd Lincoln. They were never close. Robert Todd was much more his, his mother's son kind of stiff and formal and, um, well, remember famously Lincoln had said that, you know, God only needed one D and the Tods of Kentucky needed two. And uh, I think his son, his eldest son, inhabited, uh, inherited more of his mother's temperament than he did of his father. Thank you very much. Appreciate it.